Amen. Well, while you're finding your seats, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Go ahead and look with me there. If you've got a device with your... Wherever you read the Bible, I encourage you to bring that with you to church. If you read a physical copy, bring that with you. Uh, if you read a digital copy, that's cool too. Bring that. But let's look at that together. We're in uh, week two in a new series. The book of Daniel called A Pattern and a Promise. A Pattern and a Promise. And um, I believe uh, the Lord has much for us uh, in this season of life that we are in culturally and uh, individually. Um, the, the good news is that, that our God never changes. And what we're going to see today is actually our enemy doesn't actually change that much either. He just adapts and and evolves with the times. And so the, the, the instruction, the hope, um, the content for us as God's people is, uh, is found in God's word. We don't need to look somewhere new. So we're going to dive in together to Daniel chapter 1. It's going to take us, we're going to spend a little bit of time getting going in Daniel 1. We're going we're gonna to go slow to sort of build some context as to what's happening with these famous stories that so many of us have heard about Daniel and um, and his friends and lion's dens and, and furnaces. And once we get through chapter one, we'll pick up some steam. We'll start hitting big chunks uh, all together. Uh, but we are gonna, we're going to build up a bit. And so today we're going we're gonna to look at just verses two through seven. Let's, uh, let's read that together, Daniel chapter one, verses two through seven. And it says this, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, referring to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and with some of the vessels of the house of God. We looked at that last week. And he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some people, or some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to understand into the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Let's pray. God, we just confess that this is your word and we submit to it. We ask that you would help us to um, receive it this morning, that you would bring it to life uh, in our midst. We believe it is a living and active word of God, that it cuts, Lord, like a two-edged sword, separating our motives, our, our thoughts, and all of that exposing us. And so we we know that you do that like a surgeon who's coming after what is sick and not well in our body. You come in to cut, to expose, and to retrieve that so that we may be healed. So would you do that sort of work in our midst this morning? Would you expose sin? Would you expose our enemy and his work and motives in our life? And um, would you help us to receive the gospel into those places, Lord, where we've been in sin, where we've been deceived? Uh, would you do that sort of work this morning? Use me to that end, Lord. Get me out of the way. Speak through me by your spirit and through your word. We look to you in Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you like me, well, I'm wondering if you like me and if you ever think about um, some of the, the big cultural atrocities that we've known throughout history and wonder, you know, things like the Holocaust or the Rwandan genocides. And, and you ever think about those things and wonder how... Um, so many people were convinced that they were doing the right thing. Because it's easy to sort of connect that in history and just attach that to Hitler, right? But you realize, like, it wasn't just him. Like, there was thousands of people, seemingly normal, right, people. Like, not monstrous, you know, they weren't all swastika tatted up, like, they, they, weren't, they didn't start that way, at least. They were seemingly like people that were your neighbors. Like, How did so many of those sort of people become so convinced that they were doing the right thing? Again, it's not just about that one figure in history. The Rwanda genocide, same thing. Like these were, Much of those killings were, were carried out by like, like literal physical neighbors, like next-door neighbors attacking, killing one another. Like, you ever wonder how things like that happen, how such mass deception and... Evil is perpetrated. 
And those are some extreme examples in the past, and I think I, I, you know, you can, you can, we can look back on those um, with the benefit of hindsight and clearly see the horror, right? We can clearly see the, the evil that is going on there. But perhaps if you're more perceptive and introspective, you have thought some of the same things about movements and people in our own day, right? That um, issues like abortion, Right, like for, for so many of us, we can see a video portraying what happens in an abortion where, where an infant inside of a womb, which in so many cases is celebrated and we're shown pictures of them, right? And look how they're growing and look how they're, you know, look at the heartbeat and, and look at the, the development there. We, we, we celebrate that when, when this baby is wanted, we looked at this a few weeks ago, that's the line, right? If it's a, if it's a desired child, then we celebrate the, the development and growth inside that womb. But when it's not, now it's just a, we, we call it, and we, I'm using that, you know, in quotations there, we call it uh, lumps of tissue and, and a cell or whatever. And then, you know, we see what happens in an abortion is that, that baby's literally torn from limb, from limb to limb and, and destroyed and sucked into a And it's horrifying to the majority of us. And yet, there are thousands, even millions of people who not only are they convinced that that's not horrible and evil, but they're actually convinced that for you to call it horrible and evil is oppressive and bigot-like because it's merely reproductive health for women, right? And, and again, it's easy for us to look and, and say, oh, well, that's them, right? And we paint this sort of monstrous picture of whoever them is. But in reality, these are, no, these are quote unquote normal people, right? These are, these are people that we rub shoulders with, that, that, that you're sitting next to at restaurants, you know, well, you know, socially distanced at restaurants now, but that you're, that you're living next to, like these are, so how does that happen? How do we get such mass agreement on things that are so plainly evil? And again, I, I use sort of uh, some of the more obvious horrors from our examples to, to sort of not to compare everything that I'm going to talk about later to those things, but to help us to see that, that if we can get there to this sort of cultural agreement or this mass agreement on these evils, on, on things that are so clearly evil, then, then the implications that go down line that are between those evils and, and, and God's word are, are far reaching and we need to think about it. And here's what I'm getting at. What we don't think about often when we, thought, when we look at large-scale cultural events, we don't think about the truth that the Bible tells us, hey, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against spiritual forces of darkness and principalities of this world. Right now, we think about, I, I, at least me, I, when we think about spiritual warfare, it's not that we, we like we say that flippantly, right? Uh, well, I know our, our struggle's not against that, and, and, and we sort of throw that out there as this, this term, you know, that we, we put out there and we believe that, but do we think about its implications? Because I think for most of us, when we think about spiritual warfare, we're thinking individually, right? Like, how does Satan want to trip you up? How does Satan want to attack you? And, and that's certainly happening, right? First Peter 5 8 says, hey, we have an enemy, he's prowling around like a lion. Like that's a predator, and he's looking for someone to devour, right? So resist him, stand firm in the faith. Like we have multiple passages like that, but I think oftentimes that's, that's preached to us as individuals, right? Or maybe to your marriage or to your family. Maybe we roll it as far up to, as to the church, but do we think about it in these large-scale cultural things? Because Whenever I, I try to wrap my mind around how can we get to these places, how can people be so sure that these things are right? As I'm studying in Daniel, I, I'm actually brought a little bit of, of, of strange and paradoxical peace to realize, oh, this is not new. We are not all that unique in this day and age. That there's actually nothing new under the sun. As Ecclesiastes says, it just takes a different form. And so the, the good news is, is that we actually know what the enemy is doing, and we that gives us a firm footing and a hope, but we need to acknowledge that and take a step back and look at the macro uh, attack that the enemy has on God's people. And that's what we're going to see as we look at the book of Daniel. We're going we're gonna to set in just this, the strategy of our enemy today for just a, a few verses before we kind of get into the pattern and the promise that will play itself out in a few different stories later in Daniel. We're going to look at, okay, how does this work? Because the reality is our enemy has a long game, okay? Meaning he has a long view of his strategy and where he needs to go. And if we're 
if we're just thinking about what's in the moment and we're just thinking about temptations right in front of us, then we're going to be flanked and realize, oh, he's taken a whole lot of people captive by these ideologies, these movements, and these, these different things that, are, that we're seeing. Honestly, we're seeing them come home to roost a lot in our own day and age. And so I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Let, let's look at uh, Daniel. Uh, let's, let's walk through this together because as we talk about these macro uh, you know, influences that our enemy has, it has individual and familial impacts that, that are far-reaching. For years, the church uh, you know, and different study groups have talked about how, you know, when young people leave the church, like the, the number of them that, as, especially as they go off to college, that, that leave the faith is, is pretty staggering and very discouraging. And there's all sorts of studies about that. But again, we need to, we need to take a step back and go, okay, what, what's going on there? And how, because if we know what's happening, it will help us to counter fight it, right? And so let's look together at what's going on here with Nebuchadnezzar uh, and this particular moment in Babylon, because it's not just an isolated story in history. This has incredible, huge, um, really the whole lay of, of history from beginning of the Bible to the end is actually, um, uh, we're, we're sort of given a glimpse behind the curtain, if you will, into what those, uh, like what's influencing and controlling those things. That there's another realm, right? That we, we throw out that Ephesians passage, our struggle's not against, you know, flesh and blood, but against powers of, the, of spiritual forces and principalities. And so what, what we're saying there, and this may be new for some of you, this may feel weird for some of you, but behind, behind the, the realm that we see and experience, there's another realm that we don't see, but we most definitely experience. And it's controlling and influencing much of what, or all of, of what is going on. We actually looked at that in the positive last week, realizing that God was the one that was in control in allowing the Babylonian Empire to come and conquer his people to discipline them, and to advance his kingdom in the long term. Today we're going to look at what's going on on the other side of that battle as we look at Babylon, not just being this moment in history, but actually the spirit that pervades the Bible from beginning to end. So as you look at verse 2, uh, we, we looked at the first part of that last week where they, you know, they took some of the vessels of the house of God into their sanctuary of their God, sort of to say, hey, my God beat up your God, right? It's sort of this, uh, this, this boastful deal. But, but what I want to look at today is that he brought them to the land of Shinar. Now, that can be, you know, blown over quickly if, you, if you're not um, listening or, or, or looking closely with a study Bible. But the land of Shinar is actually mentioned um, earlier, early in the story, back in Genesis chapter 11, in the story called the Tower of Babel. And it's kind of a short story. It's a, it's a famous story. You probably learned about it if you went to Bible or, uh, you know, Sunday school at all. But it's, it's actually just nine verses in the, 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 you know, long narrative of Genesis, but it has significant impact. So let's look at that together because as we see that Nebuchadnezzar carried these vessels and these people back to the land of Shinar, which is where um, Babylon is, is located, what we see is that there's, there's more going on here, particularly in the spiritual realm, that, that we need to look at. And so back in Genesis 11, we see that after the flood, uh, the earth continued, people on the earth continued to be evil, and, um, and they gathered together in Genesis 11, 1, says, now the whole earth had one language with the same words, and the people migrated from the east, and they found a plain in the land of Shinar. So this is the same place, and they settled there. And they said to one another, hey, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and, and butamen for mortar. And they said, come let us build for ourselves a city with a tower with its top in the heavens. And come let us make <clears throat> a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower and the children or which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. That's a crazy statement that I think we move over too quickly. But, but come, let us go down. And God says, uh, the Trinitarian God says, come, let us go down and, there, uh, and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the whole face of the earth and they left off uh, um, they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord, there, the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there, the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. So what in the world is going on there? What we, what we see is that from the beginning, God made something good. He made, a king, he made a world in Genesis 1 and 2 and he says, not only is it good, it's very good. And he was generous to his people that he placed there, his image bearers. He placed them in a vast garden. He says, guys, enjoy all of this. 
Enjoy. It's for you. Go have dominion. We're going to rule together. It's going to be great. I'm your God. You look to me for your provision, but enjoy. There's just one exception. Don't eat of that tree. Right? We see that Satan comes in and, and begins to deceive them and, and, and convince them that God's actually holding out on them, that God hasn't been good in blessing them, but God is actually holding out on them. If you look at the language of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, he's, he's undermining the goodness of God by saying, hey, did God really say y'all can't eat of any of these trees? And Eve says, well, no, just, just that one. We can't eat. Oh, he doesn't want you to eat that one. Oh, that's the good one. God's holding out on you. He must not want you to be on the throne with him. He must not want you to know what he knows, to experience what he experiences, to love what he loves, and to have the power that he has. You need to eat that. Well, he said, we'll die. No, you won't won't die. Go ahead. Uh, That's my paraphrase, obviously. But you see that he's undermining that. And so from the very beginning, we see that God has an enemy. His name is Satan, and he wants to destroy what God has built as good. And so what he does is not just attack it as bad, but he wants to counterfeit it. So what God has built as good, Satan's going to come along and try to counterfeit and, and to make something that seems a lot like it. And even sounds familiar to what God has said, but to convince God's people to abandon him as the king and to go and make a name for themselves. That's the same language in Genesis 3. Hey, God just doesn't want you to to be known. He doesn't want you to have the power. We see that same language, that same desire show up in Genesis 11. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let's build this tower that reaches up into heaven so that everybody will know that we have, like, that's the same, we're, it's, this is humans reaching for the glory that only belongs to God. Instead of worshiping the God of glory, they want to become glorious themselves. They don't want to worship and give glory to God who created them. They want to exchange that glory, as Romans 1 says, and suppress the truth and instead get glory for themselves. It's the same pattern that plays itself out. And so God comes down and confuses their languages and does away with that particular architectural project. However, what we see is that even though the Tower of Babel is no longer, you know, they don't keep building that, the spirit of Babylon is born in that moment and continues to pervade, continues to influence, and continues to attack what God has placed on earth as good. So the spirit of Babylon is something that, pervade, that, that begins there, and yes, it's present in the very practical and physical empire of Babylon here in this moment, but even when Babylon falls to Persia later in, in history, and, and really is just a moment in your history books, the Bible continues to, to look back at Babylon as the spirit that, is, that embodies the evil one and his plan to attack the, the goodness of God on this macro level, on this cultural level. You'll see it, uh, Daniel and the book of Revelation Revelation parallel each other a lot, and you see in Revelation that Babylon is actually called, Revelation 17.5 is actually called the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. The Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. What, what, what we're seeing there is, is he is attributing all of the evil, all of the perverted counterfeits that we see put out in our world is, is, is being driven by the spirit of Babylon. And we see that what Revelation is, is, is going to be summing up is that one day that spirit of Babylon, that, that empire, that spiritual empire of Babylon of our enemy will be taken out. God does have a plan to handle his business with the enemy and with Babylon in particular. We see as we go on in Revelation Uh, Several verses, I've just picked out a couple here. Uh, Chapter 18, verses 1 and 2 says, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. As we'll see later in in Daniel, uh, these prophetic books use uh, animals and beasts as uh, imagery for us. And, and so Revelation 18, 21 goes on to say, Then a mighty, mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. We'll actually see Daniel prophesy something very, actually the same sort of conquering of Babylon later in the book. But the big idea is that Babylon is a spirit that, that comes against Jesus and his kingdom, his church. Right? You saw that language of prostitute there. Jesus makes for himself a church, and he calls it what? His bride. 
and it is good. It is where the people of God find refuge, is where the people of God find hope, is where the people of God are set free from their, from their addictions, from their sin, from their pain. It's where they have healing, it's where they find hope, and it's where they find their citizenship in a, in a kingdom beyond this earth. That is the church, and Jesus calls it his bride. And he invites anyone who would repent and trust in Jesus to become a part of that family, to become a part of that kingdom. That's the goodness of God. He creates a kingdom and he calls it good and he invites sinners to come and receive healing and forgiveness. Satan is gonna create a counterfeit. He's the mother of all prostitutes. Jesus creates a bride. Satan's gonna create a whole bunch of prostitutes. As we're gonna see in a moment, he doesn't care what false god you worship. He doesn't, he doesn't care as long as it's not the one true God. So we need to know that this is a part of what explains how do we get so far, like how does this particular media outlet, how do, how do all of these things seem to be so convinced that they're doing the right thing? Well, the spirit of Babylon is at work and has pervaded parts of our world and it, and it does, it, it brings people, much like it did in the, in the Tower of Babel, together to come against God, to go against what God has said is our good and right plan, to serve and worship him and to point people to him, and instead to build a name for ourselves. That's what Satan is doing, and it's at work in every civilization and every time throughout history. So, with that in mind, as the basis, as sort of the headquarters for this Babylonian empire that is going to uh, begin these stories that we encounter in Daniel. That's sort of the hub, the energy source of what's going on there. Now let's look at, at how exactly does our enemy go about influencing and discipling our culture, if you will. And so as we go on in Daniel, we see that what Nebuchadnezzar does is he doesn't just come in and crush and destroy Jerusalem. He wants to take over Jerusalem without crushing and destroying it. So what's he going to do? He takes down the king. He puts a puppet king on the throne, and then he takes some of the really influential people from that culture, and he's going to take them back and indoctrinate them and educate them so that they can be the influencers that have the inside track to that culture so that he can build this empire on a large scale. So that's exactly what we see happen, and it's exactly how Daniel and his friends get in to the, the city of Babylon and the empire of Babylon in the first place. So we saw last week that they carried off some of the vessels of God or, you know, from the temple, but God's not worried about stuff. His true image bearers, his vessels are his people, and we see that they also carry off some of them. So verse 3 says, um, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, we'll come back to that in a moment, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, a good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom and knowledge, the, the best of the best, in, in, in essence, bring them to the king's palace. We're going to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. We're going to give them a diet. We're, gonna, we're going to shape them. We're going to give them new names. What's going on there? Listen, it's easy to sort of Sunday school this up, if you were taught this story on a flannel graph, and to miss the fact that these were people actually prisoners of war, carried from their place, taken out of their home as teenagers. It says youths. Their exact age is not known, but every scholar agrees it was under 20. Okay, so these are young men, young people of influence, and they're taken by the Babylonian king and saying, hey, you're coming with us, and they are made to walk we, I think we got a map up there, Miranda. The walk from Jerusalem to Shinar, to Babylon. Miranda, you got that map for us? You could see they walk on foot. I think it's a 700-mile journey on foot that these guys are taken from where they are. I want you to imagine that. Teens, if you're here, I want you to imagine being taken. Right, A foreign authority comes in and says, hey, you're coming with us, and you don't get to see your family anymore. You're, you're going with us. Does your family get to go? No, we just want you, and you're taken by a foreign entity into a foreign land. Parents, I want you to imagine your kid was taken. Like, we would call this human trafficking. Right? Like, this is a horror and an evil that we should not glaze over quickly. They're taken, and they're made to walk 700 miles to the city of Babylon. And once they get there, then the real discipleship, if you will, starts. The real indoctrination starts. So he's going to re remove them and displace them, and then he's going to begin to indoctrinate them with an agenda. Again, he has the long game in mind. He's counterfeiting what God offers. He says, hey, this is the people of God. I know that God has said this is what works well, right? They've been the people of God. They've seen the promised land. They've seen it flourish. They know that, but they disobeyed God. He, he's trying to build something that, that is a lot like that, that has a lot of the same promises but is, is coming against God in direct 
conflict with him. And so um, what we see at the end is we see this name change. This, this is familiar. This is common. You know Daniel as Daniel. Usually you don't hear much about him as Belteshazzar, but that's his uh, Babylonian name. But then the other three, the, the more famous uh, characters from this, this book, are, are known more commonly by their Babylonian name. But even in that, we see that, that Nebuchadnezzar and that the spirit of Babylon has intentionality in that name change. They're trying to change their identity. If you look at the Hebrew names versus their Babylonian names, we've, we've got a chart here for you. Daniel's name, it, these are all names given by um, these Jewish people. These are Yahweh-centric names to reflect. Uh, names don't mean that much to us in our culture. Right? For some of you who are really intentional about what you named your kids, others of us, like myself, we're, we just like the names. But in this day and age, names had significance to them. And, and so Daniel's name meant God is my judge. God, Yahweh, is my judge. His Babylonian name given to him as he enters into Babylon. <clears throat> his new name means Baal protects his life. Baal is, is one of the derivatives of Baal that you see later as worship. It's, it's a false god. It's a demon God. Hananiah, his name means Yahweh is gracious. They changed his name to Shadrach, which means the command of Aku, which is another demon God. Mishael, his name means who is what God is. They changed his name to Meshach, which is who is what Aku is. You see the direct undermining and conflict of, hey, this is your God? Okay, we want to we wanna totally flip you to not just like not talk about it, but to denounce it and to go the completely opposite direction. Azariah, his name means Yahweh is my helper. They change his name to Abednego, which means servant of Nebu. Again, those are all different false gods, and that brings us back to this deal that, God, that, that you know, the spirit of Babylon, Satan doesn't care. He doesn't need his name up there. You realize that? He doesn't need his name on the title of this false empire. He just wants you to worship anybody except Yahweh. So he doesn't care which of these false gods you go after. And here's the deal. Jesus says broad is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way unto salvation, and few are those who find it. What's he talking about? Hey, there's a thousand different ways. Listen, this flies in the face of what is common in our culture, the way that we're indoctrinated by common media, you know, and people like Oprah who seem to be good. And I'm not trying to demonize her. I'm just saying this is, this is how the spirit gets into our culture. They say things like, hey, we're all on the same path, right? We're all on, you know, we just take, we're all on the same journey and to the same destination. We just take different paths to get there, right? All these world, these different religions, they're all the same. We don't need to judge one another. We don't need to say that this is, this is right and this is wrong. We're all headed the same direction. We need to have tolerance and acceptance and things like that. Satan doesn't care which of these gods you end up serving as long as it's not Yahweh, as long as it's not the God of the Bible. And so they begin to uh, change these young men by, by actually giving them a new name. Now, there, there may be more to that, but uh, to their identity shift, but you see that these, are, these, are, these guys are picked intentionally. They are good-looking men. They are smart. They were in the gifted program, Right? So they went in and said, okay, find the smart ones. Which ones are in the gifted program? Okay, give me them. Are they good looking? Okay, are they not so good looking? Okay, you can leave them. We want smart and good looking. Right? That's who they picked very intentionally. That's who they chose. And they said, okay, bring them here. And and they're going to send them to the University of Babylon. It's a three-year education. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's a three-year education. We're going to send them to the University of Babylon. They're going to teach them the language of the Chaldeans. And the literature of the Chaldeans, they're going to change, they're going to indoctrinate them, they're going to change their education, they're going to shape their worldview, change their language. Does this sound familiar? Y'all realize we have our, like our literal wor- meanings of words being changed, like on a dime, just because somebody was offended by it? Like, like this, is, this is how the spirit of Babylon works, both in ancient you know, times here with Daniel and in our day and age. They're going to send them to the University of Babylon, and then at the end of the three years, they're going to appear before the king, and they will become officers who, who then have influence over this kingdom and help him continue to advance that kingdom. Perhaps they're sent back to Jerusalem to sort of be uh, Babylonian influencers and help people move from their Jewish culture into Babylonian assimilation. Or they, they might stay there and rule and help. You know, it, we don't know exactly, but he has plans for them and he wants to indoctrinate them and shape them into what he intends for them to be. And all the while, he is... He is counterfeiting what God has put in place as his kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, hey, this is what we're going to do. And so you see, he's, he's going <clears> to, <throat> he, he wants to 
um, undermine every bit of what God has said is good. I want you to see even that, that teaching them the liter- literature and the language, that's, that's him counterfeiting. I don't know if you remember back in Deuteronomy 6, and we talked about it uh, in our last series, but God told his people, hey, you need to talk about my law, talk about my stories, my redemption, my relationship to you all of the time. God tells his people, hey, you, families, not just bring them to church and let the pastor and the youth pastor and the, and the, and the Journey Kids volunteers teach them, but you, as a family, you need to talk about God. You need to talk about God's word all the time. You need to open it when you're home. You need to open it when you're driving in the car. You need to talk about it whenever you're, you're lying down in bed. You need to pray to him. You need to talk about it whenever you rise up in the morning. You need to talk about God all the time. You need to be cultivating this relationship with God based on this knowledge of who God is. Right? God says you got to do it all of the time. You are responsible, parents. You are responsible, families, to in, disciple your kids. And when we don't do that, guess what? The Spirit of Babylon is glad to disciple them for you. Listen, your kids, our kids, even ourselves, are being discipled. You realize that, right? You're being discipled. Your kids are being discipled. They're being shaped. They're being taught what to believe, what the truths are, what language to use, what they can say, what, what's, what's, what's tolerance, what's love, what's, what's good, what's not. Like, they're being shaped. What... Satan wants to take what God has made as good and undermine it and counterfeit it and hold it up as something else. You see this with the commands of God. You see this with sexuality. I don't know if you noticed that word there, eunuch. Ashpenaz is the chief of what? The eunuchs. Some of you are like, I don't know. Does that mean what I think? Yeah, it means exactly what you think it means. Castrated. Was Daniel castrated? I I don't know. There's, There's... it's not clear from here. Uh, some scholars are pretty convinced that the, based off of the, the way that this says the chief of eunuchs several times, and that's whose care Daniel is put in as the chief of eunuchs, and over and over again it's, it said, hey, Daniel comes into the, you know, to the care of Ashpenaz, the chief of eunuchs. It seems as though Daniel and his friends were likely made into eunuchs. There's other scholars that say, no, because they were without blemish, that, that most assuredly says they probably weren't castrated, they weren't made into eunuchs. It, it doesn't matter. The reality is, nonetheless, Babylon is castrating men. Why? Because the spirit of Babylon always wants to destroy biblical masculinity. It always wants to destroy sexuality. You realize that, right? Like, are your minds exploding? This is not new. The sexual revolution that we're in right now, the confusion, it's not new. This is the spirit of Babylon. It's right here, right? Satan doesn't want you men to be men. He wants to emasculate our culture. And listen, he's kind of succeeding, Satan doesn't want godly families to have kids and raise them as godly kids who will grow up to serve and to follow Jesus and have a godly influence on the kingdom of the world. He doesn't want that. And he will undermine that in any way that he can. He doesn't care if he gets you to get a divorce so that you dads are not influencing your kids. He doesn't care if he just gets you to watch the doggone TV over and over and over again and not read your Bible to your kids. He doesn't care if he just gets you to get addicted to porn and you are so distorted in your own view of sexuality that you won't talk about it with your kids. He doesn't care how he gets there, but he wants to destroy biblical sexuality. He wants to destroy what God made as good, male and female, He wants to confuse all that mess. This is not new. It's the spirit of Babylon at work. He wants to destroy biblical masculinity. He wants to destroy biblical sexuality, biblical gender. It's not new. But he doesn't just, it's interesting, because he doesn't just do it like a tyrant ruler he doesn't send them to concentration camps. What's he do? He's going to make their life really, really good, isn't he? He's going to indoctrinate them, but then listen to what he says. He's, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. Listen, I just walked 700 miles, maybe after I've been castrated, maybe not. Regardless, that's a rough day. It's a rough journey, rough several months walking 700 miles, right? I just walked 700 miles in the desert. I'm going to show up. I'm going to be hungry. I'm going to ask you if you got some food, and you'll be like, yeah, come right on into the king's fridge. Come sit at his table. He's prepared something particular for you. He's prepared his own food for you. 
Listen, what's going on there? Listen, he's, he's trying to influence their hearts. He's trying to influence, he's trying to give them a taste of what is good, right? Sin, listen, most of us, like, there's, a certain, there's certain kinds of destructive sin that you're just not going to be all that tempted by, but, and that's different for everybody. But sin has its power because it is appealing. Why? Because it's a distortion or a counterfeit of what God has made as good. That's why sex is so perverted, because it's a good gift, a really powerful and awesome gift that God gave to his people. But when it's distorted, it has that power turned in on itself and influences greatly. So what's the king doing? He's, he wants to make sure that, hey, these guys become dependent on him. Right? I'm going to give you good meals. Right? I'm going I'm to make sure you're well fed. What's going on? Listen, they're not going to hate that guy. If he's giving them good, like, Listen, you're going, to learn to, you're going to learn to trust in him. You're going to learn to give your devotion. You're going to, it's going to feel like, oh, man, Babylon's not that bad. They're going to go back to Jerusalem. Hey, guys, it's not that bad there. It's actually pretty good. Nebuchadnezzar's been good to us. We should, we should give our devotion to him. Well, what about God? You know, we could still be, you know, we could still be Christian, but, you know, this is not that bad. We don't have to fight that hard. We're going to look at that in a, in a couple of weeks of, of really, you know, there's, there's people who say they're Christians, but they don't live. We're going to get to that and how we practically live that out. But today, I just want to look at the strategy there. He's, he's giving them, he's making them dependent upon him. He's giving them a good taste of what his kingdom can offer so that they become dependent upon him, all for the discipleship, all for the shaping of the culture in the long view, in the long game. That's where he's going with these young people. And they are going to be educated for three years, and then they will stand before the king. All right. What do we do with all this? Because some people will hear all this and be like, yes. And, and, and we, we have a few different responses. Some people hunker down in fear, right? They don't want to go out into the world. They want to keep their kids safe. They don't want them to know anything of this crazy world, right? And they try to just shelter them, shelter them, shelter them. And then, but here's the deal. Some, at some point, <laughs> they got to go out in the world. You got to go out in the world. So what do we do? Do we have fear? Or others want to say, yeah, that's right. And we start rising up and fighting against these movements and these, you know, these legislative you know, attacks. And we just spend our time yelling at the cultural and these movements. But here's the deal. If we do all that, we miss what the wisdom that God has said here is, hey, your struggle is not against flesh and blood. So what does that mean? Don't fight like flesh and blood. What do you mean, Jordan? Well, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 says, hey, we have weapons. I want to read it. If I can find it. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but they are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. Church, let me say that again. You're an army. You're being said to fight for the kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness. And here's what he says. Hey, I know they got guns. I know they got cannons. I know they got drones. I know they got like crazy war jets. But, and, and you got none of that. <laughs> like that's the battle speech. You got none of that. But your weapons, they're even better. They're not of the flesh, but they are powerful not through your own strength, but through God. And what are they going to do? They're going to demolish. That's the language of the scriptures. Demolish or destroy strongholds. So Paul says we engage in that way in battle. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, so we're not going to fight like flesh and blood. What does that mean? Listen, church, we cannot be naive to the movements of the world. We cannot just sit here and go, la, 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 and, and pretend it's not happening. We have to understand what's happening. We have to not demonize them, right, some group but rather understand that's a movement of the spirit of Babylon and the way to, to, to battle that is not with the weapons of the flesh, but rather with the weapons of the spirit. So what does that mean? Well, it means we become a people of prayer and we become a people who are intentional about our discipleship and we become a people who are intentional about sharing the gospel. Okay, we become a people of prayer, we become a people of discipleship, and we become people who are quick to share the gospel. What do I mean by that? Listen, we need to be a people who are praying. We need to fight with prayer for one another, for individuals, for our family, for our kids. If you're not praying for your kids, I'm convicted about this myself. I, I pray you know, quickly for my kids, but it's to sit down and intercede before them. I, I'm not done that well. I'm convicted by that this week. And so we need to be a people praying for our family, for our community group, for our churches, for our kids 
for ourselves, for our spouses. We need to be praying because there is a realm that we don't see, but we most definitely experience. There is a realm that we don't see, but we most definitely experience. And the way that we engage with that realm is, is through prayer. Okay, so we need to be a people of prayer. We're going to see Daniel model a strong prayer life for us later in the book. And then secondly, we need to be a people who, again, we're not naive, but we disciple our kids. What does that mean? We need to teach them to understand what's happening in the world at an appropriate age, right? This is not a, like, you have to have wisdom about this when you expose them to what, but you can't just shelter them and keep them from it and then send them out at some point for them to just get destroyed really quickly. Like, you have to teach them to kind of chew the meat and spit out the bones, if you will. Right? Because not everything that they're going to experience in the world is bad. That's why it's a counterfeit. You understand the appeal of a counterfeit, right? Is it looks a whole lot like the real thing. You understand that whenever they're sent to a university or even, this is why we're at battle with our school systems, right, and curriculum. Like, you guys are aware of all of this stuff right now, right? That's the, the movements that are happening. This is what's going on, the spirit of Babylon, okay? So, Maybe you homeschool, maybe you don't, but regardless, if you, you, you've got to, even if you do homeschool, it doesn't mean you're out of the conversation, right? So you, you've got to teach them, oh, these things are out here, and, and this is how you need to navigate them. If you're sending them to public school, you need to know you're sending them into that stuff, and that is not necessarily wrong. You just need to not do it flippantly. You need to make sure that you're discipling them so that they have a base to stand on, so as these things come, they're able to stand. And in fact, Daniel and these guys are going to give us an example of, hey, they can stand, that teenagers don't have to have a season of rebellion just because they're in adolescence, that they actually can be faithful. All right, so we're going to see that, but we can't be naive. We have to be intentional about discipling our kids. That means we have to talk to them about what is good about God's command, why it's good, and why these perversions we see out here in the world are just that, they're perversions. And we need to reject them, still love people. And that's why it's going to get appealing, right? Because the spirit of Babylon is going to, is going to be whispering things to your kids like, hey, your faith sounds a whole lot like bigotry. Shouldn't you be loving these people? Right? Fill in the blank with who these people are. Can't keep up. It's changing all the time. But that's the sort of thing that Satan's going to whisper to our kids and even to you. Shouldn't you be loving them? And it sounds like the kingdom of God, doesn't it? It sounds right. It sounds like, yeah, I, I should. Maybe this is right. This is not bad. This seems to produce love. This seems to produce good. Like, you see, that's the spirit of Babylon. It's going to have its appeal. So we have to anchor ourselves beyond the surface level, beyond just Jesus is good, trust him for your salvation, and don't cuss, don't watch rated R movies, don't have sex before you're married. Now, good luck. That's really bad discipleship. You missed a whole lot. Right? We have to set ourselves up and our kids up better. Teach them, hey, don't dress like that, and here's why. Teach them, hey, don't watch that, and here's why. Don't take your device to your room, and here's why. The spirit of Babylon is all over these things. You understand that, right? Spirit of Babylon is all over these things. And if you are turning your kids loose with the spirit of Babylon in their room with a closed door, you need to expect the spirit of Babylon is taking ground on your own kingdom in your own home. There's filters, there's, there's ways, there's, we, we got some tools for you. I didn't plan on dropping that on there, so I don't have some how-tos there, but there's stuff there, and, and we can help you. But you need to be wise about that. You need to take control, especially men. You need to take control of your home. You need to stand here and say, no further, Satan. Draw a line. Say, no more ground will be taken in my home. In fact, we're going to huddle up, we're going to disciple, and we're going to start advancing on you. I'm getting way too ahead of, of the book. Here's, so we pray, we disciple, right? We have to, we, listen, the reason they don't freak out in fear, the reason they don't just start fighting Nebuchadnezzar in, in these culture wars is because they know that God is in control. And that's why we don't fear either. God didn't give us a spirit of fear. He gave us a spirit of, of, of wisdom and of sound mind and of power. So we don't freak out as our culture moves into, into crazy Crazy, right? We stand firm. We don't, we don't fear in that. We know that God is in control. He's using it maybe to discipline us as people, but most definitely to advance his kingdom so we can rest in that. That's the key to Daniel and his friend's faithfulness is that they know God is in control. So that allows them to live faithfully in the midst of a Babylonian chaos. And then we are quick to share the gospel. Romans 1, 16 says, man, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto those who are being saved. Church, we cannot be ashamed of the gospel. We're going to talk about it later in the book. We're probably going to get persecuted for it. It's going to change. But we cannot be ashamed of the gospel because it's the only thing who sets people free. It's the only thing who actually brings about the hope, the freedom, the, 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 the thing that everybody's longing for with these social justice movements. It's the only thing that brings true justice. It's the only thing that brings true hope and true change is the gospel. What do I mean by that? Listen, here's, here's this, the, the bottom line news. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the Bible says you're captive to the spirit of Babylon, that you are like these men. You're carried off into captivity, into slavery. And you'll never be good enough. You'll never get woke enough. You'll never learn enough, be moral enough, or educated enough, reformed enough to rescue that captivity that those chains are unbreakable for you as a person. doesn't matter how good you are, no matter how much you check off, how much humanitarian work you do, you are a slave to sin, to the spirit of Babylon, to Satan and his kingdom. But the good news is, the gospel is that Jesus came for sinners such as you are not, such as some of us. That's how we all were. The good news is you're not here amongst a bunch of really good moral people who have got it figured out. Like we were all enslaved to that sin. And, and those of us who have become Christians, we cried out to the savior of the world who conquered sin, death, and the grave on the cross, rose back up out of that grave in victory and says, hey, all you who come to me, I just won this battle. Come get the victory. Come, come to me. You gotta repent, you can't be your own God, you can't chase your own life, but you come to me, you lay down your life, you give me your sins, you pick up my cross, we'll do some work. You'll be set free and we'll advance on, 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 enemy, on enemy territory. The Bible says the gates, that the church of Christ will win, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. church, we win, period. Listen, the big idea is Babylon is a huge force, but she's going down, she's going down. The, the, the point is, don't, be taken down with her. If you're here, you're not a Christian, that's where you're headed. The Bible says, because of your sin, you are on your way to hell. You deserve the wrath of God, as did I, as did everybody else in this room. You deserve the wrath of God. The only escape from that is Jesus Christ and his blood. And the good news is, is he offers it. So if you're here and you're, you haven't yet been saved, you need to do that today. Nothing else matters beyond you doing that. For the rest of us, we need to take some stock. We need to think, okay, how's the spirit of Babylon influencing our life right now? To be honest, where have you started to question the goodness of God? Where have you started to wonder if maybe this way is not better? Listen, we do have an enemy, and he does want to devour us. But we also have a savior who has devoured him and offers us hope. And as I said earlier, the only way to escape the wrath of God is through the blood of Christ. I want you to take out your communion cups. If you didn't get them, there's some on the table just outside those doors in the lobby. I want you to think about the blood of Christ. I want you to think about this whole mess started when God's children had a meal without him they had a meal with Satan, and they didn't invite God. It's a bad idea, just FYI. Genesis 3, the enemy says, hey, go ahead and eat. It'll be good. It ends up to destruction. That, when we choose sin over God, that's what we're doing. We're choosing our own glory over his, and it leads to slavery. It leads to death. But Jesus comes, and he says, hey, I know you've been eating with the enemy, I know you don't deserve my life that I've given you, but hey, I'm full of grace and mercy and I love you. For sinners who have repented of their sins, he says, hey, come here. I want you to take and eat. This is a different meal. This one gives you life. The other one with Satan, with your own sin, leads to death, but this one gives, it gives you life. We partake of Jesus, we turn to him, and we get, we get life. So Christian, take that body of Christ and eat this is Christ's body broken for you. No kingdom is advanced, no kingdom is won, no empire is built without the shedding of blood. It just happens throughout history, right? People are killed, blood is shed. Jesus said, hey, 
This cup right here is the blood of the new covenant. It's the blood of my kingdom. This is how my kingdom is advanced. I, I didn't require it of anybody else. Jesus says, I am the lamb who climbed up on the altar and gave myself and my own blood purchased my kingdom. Take and drink. Church, you are the children of God. I don't care what name the enemy has given you. Kids, I don't care what evil, I don't, I don't care what the other people at school have called you. Whether that be you know, a goody two-shoes or fat or a bigot or skinny or dumb or whatever. Right? Church, I don't care who did what to you in the past. I do, I do care. I shouldn't say it that way. It doesn't matter who did what to you in the past. Listen, so much of the spirit of Babylon, the way that it distorts sex is... One of the things that I consider a privilege is I get to share my story. Revelation says that through the power of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb, we will overcome the enemy. But as I share my own story, it encourages me and grieves me the amount of people that have come to me and said, yeah, me too. I was abused as a kid. Me too. I hate it. Hate it. But my redemption is found not in me just getting over that and doing better, but running to Jesus. Running to Jesus. He forgave me my own sin and he has healed me of the sins that were committed against me. If you're here and you've been weighed down by that, maybe you've never told anybody, but it has shaped your identity. Satan has whispered in your, in your ear and he said, hey, you are, you're just that. You don't, you don't love God. You're not a child of God. You are fill in the blank. You're undesirable. You're filthy. You're used goods. You're, you're a liar. You're a fake. You're a fraud. I don't know what has been whispered in your ear or, or screamed over your soul. But what I do know is we have a God who went to great lengths to knock down the barrier that stood between he and you. And Zephaniah says that he sings over us. He sings over us. Church, follower of, of Jesus, you are his child. It doesn't matter what kingdom we're a part of or what's advancing on us, we are citizens of heaven. We're children of God. And in that, we find not only our identity, but our hope. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to come and receive the good news of Jesus, maybe for the first time ever. If you don't know him, you've never been saved, come, come, come receive new life. Be born again today. It says you, confess, you realize you're a sinner, you need a Savior, you confess that Jesus is that Savior, boom, that's the gospel, you'll be born again. It's an amazing offer. Don't wait another moment. Come receive him today. But then for the rest of us, we still have an opportunity to receive the good news, to receive the gospel in our life. So let's do that, church. Let's use the altar. Let's use our place. Let's pray where we are. We're going to sing together in response to God's goodness and his power and his kingdom. Jesus, would you take back enemy-occupied territory this morning where your goodness has been distorted and counterfeited and frauded and presented as something that would bring life but has enslaved person after person after person. Lord, would you break chains this morning? Chains of pornography, chains of addiction, chains of, of shame, chains of guilt. Would you do that work this morning? We need you, Jesus. And so we ask that you would come be the conquering king right now in our own hearts and that you would do that work increasingly in our world. May it begin with us. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.